0: Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 233. What can I say? We must begin with a tragic and horrific killing in cold blood on a Shabbos morning, Jews attending a bris in Pittsburgh. And I want to dedicate this entire program in their memory and their honor And of course, address how do we Jews react to something that is so senseless, so absolutely unjust is not even a good word to use. People from age 54 to 97 years old. I mean, your heart bleeds, your heart cries for this loss. The families, the community, And you see the entire country in shock. In a synagogue. People coming to Davin to pray, to come for the bris. Completely defenseless. And an outright act of anti-Semitism, as has been reported. I don't even want to repeat the words. They're looking to kill Jews. So the first thing... Unfortunately, this is not the first time in history that Jews have been killed in cold blood. However, it's shocking today in the world in which we live, the free world and country that the United States has become a haven, a blessing for us. And we, haven't, we don't hear such things. They're mostly stories that happened in the past generation in Nazi Europe, Soviet Union, in uh, Tsarist Russia, in, mid, in the Middle Ages, So as I said, unfortunately, we have a history. And when you look at how Jews dealt with it, you actually have an awesome and tremendous lesson for each one of us, and even for those that are deeply suffering as we speak. Now, the first thing is we all cry together. It's not the loss of one person, it's the loss for all of us. We cry together. And with all the questions, we don't have an answer why. We see it time and again. Whenever the question was asked, the response was silence. God's response was silence. Aaron's response was silence. Because there's no words and there's no explanation. The most brilliant mind cannot speak to a crying heart. And we're sensitive to that. And we're aware of that, especially right in the wake of the tragedy. And yet, we don't become paralyzed, How this paradox works, nobody really knows, but it works. And we have the expression, the timeless expression, in the book of Kehelas, where King Solomon writes, and the living shall take to heart. We take it to heart. Firstly, obviously, the grief, the loss. But we also take to heart that we don't ignore it and we look into our introspection, into our own soul, a soul search. As Maimonides writes, the Rambam writes, in the beginning of the laws of Tinius, of fasting, explaining the, why do we fast, the different fast days that we have throughout the year, and he gives an unbelievable and powerful explanation. He says, when a tragedy, when a catastrophe happens to an individual or a community, it is cruel to look at it as some type of random event that just happened, an accident. But we have to look into our hearts and see what we can do to commend our ways and correct. And that's why we fast during the, holiday, during the fast days, which were, happened due to different tragic events in history. And this applies as well to this tragedy. I'm not suggesting we have to fast. That's up to rabbis. If they want to call a fast day, that's their thing. Usually that's not done. But The point I'm making here is that we do not ignore it, not just that we feel the pain and we have the empathy and we grieve and we cry and we participate in every possible way to support, morally support, emotionally support in every possible way those that have lost lives and their families, but we also look into our hearts. And this is important to emphasize, and I believe I've discussed this in this program more than once. It's not about point, finger-pointing. Because many people say, oh, it's due to somebody's actions. You must have done something wrong. No, you have to look at yourself. You heard about the story. Even if you don't live in the community, that means that you have to look into your own heart and soul. And it doesn't say necessarily that because you did something wrong, that's why this happened. As I said, we don't explain it. But it means that we have. To, it's an a opportunity, and it's a, a wake-up call. So you see senseless hate you counter it with senseless love. When you see darkness, we counter it with light. And this has been the Jewish way, which frankly is a universal way and the most healthy psychological way to deal with tragic loss, is that we do not remain complacent. We don't get paralyzed in the pain. On the contrary, we take all our grief and we channel it toward a revolution of good. You know, say one second, there's so many reasons to be angry and bitter and ac- accusatory. And yes, the person responsible is absolutely responsible and should be prosecuted in the fullest possible way. But the question is, what do we do? Is that enough? No. We have to become better people. And here are 11 individuals, 11 souls. In a way, we redeem them by taking their memory, then their legacy, by doubling and tripling and quadrupling, and as many times as possible, the good deeds that we commit to in their honor. As we did with the Holocaust, six million Jews, so we have to replace six million peoples, all the good deeds that they would have done, if that's possible, but as much as we can. So yes, this is a call to action. But at the same time, obviously, right now, just to absorb it all is difficult, but that's the direction we take. And you look at the greats, the greats of the, all the greatest of greats, that's what they did. They grieved, they suffered, they were hurt. But they didn't end there. Because grief is energy, sadness is energy, pain is energy. And energy could just go to waste, God forbid, or it can be channeled toward greater commitment, becoming a better person, becoming less complacent. Obviously, measures need to be taken, whether it's security measures besides legal measures to protect and make sure it doesn't happen again. And whatever those measures, we leave to the people who deal with that. And everything should be used. Our approach is being prudent. You do everything necessary to protect innocent people. But on a personal level, which is what I'm addressing, Hasidus applied, is we don't allow a negative thing to turn us into negative people. Yes, we've suffered, but we have not become sufferers. Yes, we grieve, but we don't become grievers. We use it to turn it into a positive approach. And that's the essence of the Hasidic approach to everything in life. It's not naive or escapism or avoiding the issue. It's looking sometimes darkness in the eye and yet saying, I will take that and turn it into a positive force for good. That's how we rebel. That's how we express our vengeance not through other acts of atrocities, but through a commitment to build our families stronger, to make greater commitments to goodness, and to share that with our children and with everyone around us. That's how we create a healthy approach to even the most horrific and insane and senseless type of killings like this one. Hashem should bless the families to have the strength to deal with this and become stronger. May we all join with them, because as I said, it's the pain of us all. And may the neshamas that were taken, Kedushim, literally, and the Kiddush Hashem, their lives were taken because they were Jewish, no other reason. May those neshamas cry out in heaven and say, At Khan, Ad mosai. How much more do we have to take? That this should be the last of all pain in our lifetimes, and we should be Zech Merit. The geula should come, Mashiach, and the return of these souls and all. The, our loved ones and all our families and all those that have passed on. But their souls continue to live on and we, meanwhile, have to do whatever is possible to channel and immortalize and personify what they stand for in this material world. Much more can be said, but I will stop with that because it's not about giving a speech on this. It's more a really a call to action, what each of us can do in this regard. And I felt the uh, Chassidus applied to life. Here's a life situation, horrific life situation, and even there, Torah, has what to say about it. So, will make a small pause, and as usual, we'll begin following this with the theme of this week. And it's hard to ignore the fact that this week's Parsha, which begins... Today, on Sunday, is Chaya's Sarah, which actually talks about the passing of Sarah. He has called the life of Sarah. Because to really see eternal life, as I've discussed in the past, in many different years, you only see it after a person passes. Because then you see their legacy living on. When we're here biologically, which is a great blessing, you don't necessarily know, has the person really lived? But... The moment they pass, and you see the effect they've had on their husband, in this case Abraham, and on their son, Yitzchok, and you see how that person's spirit and personality and legacy continues to live on. Yitzchok, in stark contrast to most people, looks for a wife that is like his mother. As we speak at the end of the chapter, Rivka, that when she entered the, the oil, the tent of Sarah, he said that she was like his mother, Sarah. So the, Sarah lives on, and here we are almost 3,800 years later, <clears throat> and we talk about Sarah. As if she's alive, it's our mother, Sarah Imenu, the wife of Abraham, who both together pioneered literally morality, ethics, social justice in this world. So when do you see the Sarah now when we talk about it now? Obviously right after passing then, but till this day, thousands of years later, she lives on. You could say the same thing with everyone that passes that has left a legacy of goodness and kindness, especially has passed, but not because of their own choice and not due to health or any other reason, but tragically cut off in their lives whenever a time has come, even if it's a 97-year-old woman. Nevertheless, Chayisar lives on, and we are responsible to make sure their legacy lives on through our deeds and actions. But I want to speak about a few more points in Chayesara, as well as that tonight and tomorrow begin, is the Chof Cheshven, the 20th of Cheshven, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, so applied, the Rebbe Rashab, whose birthday, whose birthday, I should say, his birthday, Chof Cheshven, in the year Tophresh Chof Alef, which is the equivalent of the year, um Tufresh Chof Alef would be 18, um, 1860. Because it was still not the change of the secular year. So Tufish Khafala would have been 1860. The Rebbe Rashab, as I said, is the fifth Chabad Rebbe born in Chaf Hejron, the 20th Khezrin. And I want to speak about that as well as Chaisod in the light of the Chof Hijrin as well. Now, as you know, I want to first cross-reference because I've spoken about Chai and Chaf in the past years. So I don't want to go over what that which I've said because it's all accessible in our archives. And I refer you to episodes 88, 138, and 187, where we have discussed it. So I'm going to speak about a new point here. Now, the interesting thing is, Chav is Monday this year was also that way when he was born in 1860, in Tafrish Chav Alef. And the Rebbe actually spoke about it in 1964, in Tafrish Chav He. In the Sabbath, pasuk which was also that year, was also Chol was Monday. So I want to just shortly, briefly sum up what the Rebbe said. It's the best application of this is this point that the Rebbe made. The Rebbe says in that Fableing, and I can tell you, refer It's in Kutas Volume Volume Five, Chelikay, Volume Five, Page Three Hundred and Forty Six. Just a little short background, these are talks that the Rebbe delivered the Shabbosim right after his mother passed away. The Rebbe Tzachan of Vav Tishrei of that year. So the Rebbe was for bringing every Shabbos, and until VaYishlach, he actually edited those fabreinins. So this is an edited version of this Shabbos. And among other things he spoke about, he says, one of the things... Actually, it was the Monday before Chai Is that, oh, like, like here, like the Monday before Chai like like it is this year. Yeah, my correction. Sorry about that. Okay, what does he say? That one of the things that our Eulah, Shabbos, all the days of the week are elevated, is Chav Cheshur. So he says that to understand the personality of a particular day, you can look at the passion in the Torah that's connected to that. In this case, the chapter between between Sheni and Shlishi, which corresponds to the second day of the week, in the week of in the chapter of Chayesare, and what does it say there? <clears> he <throat> so says that Avram zuck and Baba Yomim, Avram aged and he came to his days. So the Gemara says. The Talmud says what means Avram Zuckerman Zuckerman be Yeshiva. and he sat in Yeshiva, in the Yeshiva studying. The Rebbe says, what's the connection to the Rebbe Rashab? The connection is the Rebbe Rashab established the Yeshiva, Yeshiva's stem Mimim, in tofresh Nun zayin, which would be the equivalent of eighteen ninety seven. The Rebbe Rashab established the yeshiva with its purpose of creating soldiers, students, soldiers who would use Torah and use Chassidus to conquer the world with Yiddishkeit and with Chassidus and bring the Mashiach. So that's one comparison. Another thing that we read, it says, God blessed Avram with everything. Says Rashi, what's Bakel? What is everything? It's the same numerical equivalent as the word ben, son. Meaning he referred, that he blessed him with a son, which indicates, and why is it relevant here? Because the, now comes the, time, comes the time to marry off the son. The Rebbe goes on to explain how a son includes everything in it, because Yitzchak included all the qualities and virtues that Avram had. What's the connection to the Rebbe Rashaab? The Rebbe Hashab too had a son called Yitzchok, Yosef Yitzchok, that's the Friedrich Rebbe, had all the, all the qualities of his father and he became the nasi, the leader, after the Rebbe Rashab and Tafresh Pei, when the Rebbe Rashab passed away. In 1920, the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe, assumed the leadership and would be the, the, the Rebbe until 1950 when the Rebbe took over. And the Rebbe goes on to say, what's the lesson to us? The lesson to us is, that whenever you come to a place, the first thing is you have to establish a yeshiva. Yeshiva means to settle in. But not just settling in. A place of Torah that's not, not aray, not something that is temporary, but is a permanent fixture in the community or in the city in which you live. The second thing is that we have to affect, every impact everything around us with all the qualities and virtues that we're given and blessed with. So the lesson is very clear about Chayisar, connecting it to the Rebbe Rashab and Chav We'll talk at the end of this program, in the Chassidist question, the connection of the, the Rebbe Rashab with Keser because he was born in, the Tzema says, he was born on in Tafresh Chof Allah, that's Kisra in Aramaic, Keser the crown, and Chav 20, Chav is the, Yosha Tev is the acronym for "Kesed also. We'll talk about that and the connection to this that we're discussing. So these are lessons that the Rebbe says here that were all relevant to us because what was the bottom line that the Rebbe Rashab taught us is he established the yeshiva not just to learn. Learning is critical. But to take the learning and applying it to life and actually transform our communities and the world around us with Teir and and prepare it for that world when the, when the world will come to peace and no more bloodshed, and only joy, and no more war, and no more famine, and all the other details that the Rambam enumerates in the time of Mashiach comes, a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And that's the lesson we take from Avram and the Rebbe Rashad and the connection to that. You can look it up more in detail in the, the Sikha that I referred to. But I want to connect it back to Pittsburgh, I was looking at them, the Friedrich Rebbe, talk about Yitzchak, came to America the first time in 1929, 1930. So he visited many cities, didn't visit Pittsburgh, actually, visited Philadelphia. But then, 10 years later, when he settled, one of the first places where yeshiva was set up, a yeshiva, was in Pittsburgh. There's actually an entire chapter dedicated to it in a book, in a sefer, called Tell This Chabad, The Story of Chabad in America. Entire story. So chapter 44 there discusses a whole s- chapter just on the, the the yeshiva set up in Pittsburgh with all the details. The names of the trustees, it's fascinating actually. So I was looking it up because in a concept, in a, in, in a certain sense, we read later in the, the book of Genesis at the end that when when I, he, Jacob went down to Egypt, he sent Yehuda before him, Yehuda, Shalach Lofon of Geishna. He sent them before to Goshen to set up a yeshiva. Because, like we just said, wherever you go, you have to set up a yeshiva. And that's what the Fritika Rebbe did, the Yitzchak of our generation. Meaning of the generation of, after the Rebbe Rashab, as the Rebbe would always refer, the Yitzchak of our generation, saw himself and our generation as a continuation of that. Set up a yeshiva, including in Pittsburgh, a place of Torah, a place of Kedusha. Now you could say so. That now when you have such a disgraceful thing that happens, in a way it's like a blemish, not a blemish. It means those foundations will keep us strong, like everywhere throughout all our travails and all our tra- journeys, ups and downs, the tera, the mokim, the yeshiva, all the activities we do that are for good, that will override and will ultimately prevail over all the darkness. Someone asked a question happened today, came in today, and said in that context, how do I apply what the Rebbe said after the Malot attack that the mezuzah could have protected them? So Malot was a tragic terrorist attack in north of Israel in 1972, 73. And, after the, and there was a killing of children in schools, a horrific attack as well. And the Rebbe then came out with mezuzah, the Mifzah campaign of mezuzah. Mezuzah also has protective element to it. The Rebbe made it very clear, again, it's not about not having a mezuzah Causes A mezuzah, he said, was like a helmet. You wear a helmet, it's not guaranteed, but it's additional protection. I'm sure this synagogue had a mezuzah. They were, as I said, in the middle of a bris. So I don't think we can look at it in that way, and that's not the way to look at it. So how do I apply this to the recent attack in Pittsburgh? I don't want it coming out the wrong way where people would get offended and hurt because I sound like I know why they were killed. Absolutely right. We do not, we, we cannot explain it in any way, because they are tzaddikim that have lived and were killed, and they had everything. is a That's not the way of a Jewish approach. That we look at it that way. Should a person check their mezuzas afterwards? Should we do whatever we can to increase our? Absolutely. But not to connect and say, because it is, that happened. I want to make it very loud and clear. Since you asked it, and other people may be thinking this way, that's why I read it, even though it's unequivocally not acceptable to speak that way. We look into our own hearts, and we do whatever we can to increase, to tshuva, to increase our light. More light dispels darkness. To, at the end of the day, there was a criminal act here. A murderer, who's going to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And he's responsible. No one else. Yet, we look into our hearts because we. what we, can we do to bring more light into this world to prevent and eliminate and eradicate once and for all such darkness? I want to also cross-reference on this topic, episodes 11, 61, 83, and 188, where I've spoken about, unfortunately, previous tragedies and that complements the discussion here, as well as about anti-Semitism in chapters, in episodes 29 and 31. Okay. Now with that, as I said, it's difficult not to talk about this topic, so I went back to it because it's relevant. But I will now go to some questions completely unrelated, and at the end of the day, the focus here is positive. So let's talk about some matters. And the first next question is the lottery. So last week there was this great lottery, this lottery that over a billion dollars $1.6 $1.6 billion, I believe. So the question is asked, what is the Rebbe's view on buying a lottery ticket? So interestingly, it was going around a Yechidus where somebody actually asked the Rebbe, Machni Yisrael Yechidus, the Rebbe would have a private audience with the supporters of Machni Yisrael, one of the Rebbe's organizations. And it was the 7th of Tishrei in the year 5752. So that would be 1991. And the man asked the Rebbe, he says, I once bought a lottery ticket, should I buy a lottery ticket? And the Rebbe says to him, yes, but just one. Only one. Which is consistent to other things we've heard. That the God wants to bless you. It's a keli. It's not the keli of making a parnosah, of, of getting a job. But don't over-rely on it. Don't become a, God forbid, some just don't rely on a on, on lottery ticket to succeed. If Hashem wants, one ticket is enough. The Rebbe doesn't say that, but it's consistent with the whole approach. So it's like making a keli, and yes, a lottery can work. Obviously, if a person becomes dependent on it and even addicted to it and thinks this is the way they're going to make a living, that's not appropriate. I'm adding that from other places, not explicitly in this Yechidus, but this Yechidus says one, only one, repeats it twice. Okay, so we have that directive. Um, but not to get consumed and obsessed with it. At the end of the day, even though we know, which means that God blesses us in everything we do, we make a container, and we know that the Baal Shem Tov story, that Baal Shem Tov once needed something, so he went to a window, knocked on the window and left. So a student said, why did you, why, why did you knock on the window? He says, because it says, you have to do something. So why did you leave? So he said, because I made my keli. Now the guy, if God wants it, he'll make sure that the money comes to me or whatever the need was. Now the Baal Shem Tov, as the Rebbe emphasizes many times, that was for him enough. For most of us, we need to actually do more. But that doesn't preclude that buying a lottery ticket since that's available. And if Hashem wants, God wants, he'll be blessed and then and you'll win it. But again, the only one, which means not overdoing it. In a follow up question to that, someone wrote, Hello Rabbi Jacobson, I'm turning to you with this question being that this is the only open forum you can get where you can get a reliable answer based on a Rebbe Siddh. Well, thank you very much for that. So the question he writes, is there a spiritual significance to a huge amount of wealth being raffled off in this world? I recall learning that even a grass will only grow if it was decreed from from above, which extending that to our case means that it was ordained from above that there should be a huge wealth raffled off to potentially any individual. So my question is, when we look at this lottery and the hype, what can we learn from it? Also, if the Rebbe ever mentioned something we can learn from this, do you mind sharing it with us? Thanks and blessings to you and your family. I don't recall the Rebbe speaking about this, but again, that may be, there is, and I'm not aware of it, so if anybody is familiar with something, please share it, and I will in turn share it with next week or the following weeks. Um, but if you, of the cuff, so to speak, what comes to mind, everything is a lesson. It's a very interesting question. In other words, not just whether to buy the lottery ticket, which I address, but also what lessons? The lesson is that it shows that a person, God, can bless everybody and creates opportunities in this strange times, that even though to make a billion dollars, or 1.6 billion after taxes, maybe it's half of that, is still an exorbitant amount, that the Shem wants he can bless somebody even in a true Sahemm, that God's help and salvation can come the blink of an eye. That's the first lesson that comes to mind. Completely disproportionate to the amount of effort we put in. So that's number one. Number two, why in our times is that the way? Well, we do live in a time of abundance. Prosperity that once was unprecedented. And at the end of the day, all the prosperity was created in order to serve God. So it could well be that God allowed this type of lottery to happen because it's a way that, those that, may, that anyone that wins it should actually use it for a godly and divine purpose, not just an indulge. That's the second point I would make. And the third point I would make is that we are right now close to the time of Mashiach, when it will be Madana Mitzim Kaafar. Rambam says, pleasures, delights will be as plentiful as dust of earth. It will be all over, to the point it won't even be valued because it will be so abundant. You know, wealth is all about supply and demand, If, for example, there was very little dust in this world, that would be very valuable. But gold happens to be more rare. And other precious stones. When Mashiach comes, it will be so abundant. So it could be right before the taste, before Mashiach comes, we're starting to get a taste of that type of abundance that comes with little effort and it'll just be spread out to everybody. So obviously the lottery is not to everyone. But it's maybe a taste of that experience. Those are the few points that come to mind. Okay. Let's go to another question, completely, again, unrelated, at least ostensibly. Everything is always connected. After finishing yeshiva, I'm not sure what I should be doing. I am feeling resentful that I was not trained to make a living. What would the Rebbe say about first making a living and then getting married? In more detail, the question breaks into two parts, two different questions, which I combined from different people, from different times. Um, And that goes like this. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I've watched several of your videos and find them very insightful and helpful. I would also like to commend you on your courage to face any question without holding back. My question is a vague one which could broach on various topics, so I apologize in advance and we will try to get to the point. I'm a quote-unquote normal bocher student who just finished quote-unquote the system including shlichas smicha, etc. is being an emissary at some yeshiva, and smicha is getting ordination, rabbinic ordination. I'm 23 years old and I've had a good time in yeshiva. The problem is now what? Where do I go from here? It suddenly occurred to me that I don't really know what I want to do and that I lack the, fundament- that I lack the fundamentals to do them. Feelings of resentment toward my upbringing are creeping in, and I'm trying to stay positive. However, I do wonder, how does the Rebbe explain the Gemara Rambam? They write, the way of the wise is to first purchase a house and then find a wife. Furthermore, would the Rebbe's opinion about college in- include what we have today with Jewish non-mixed settings, Jewish colleges that have non-mixed settings? Is there a concept of times have, of the times of change, quote-unquote? Regarding what the Rebbe says, the second way it is said about different men Okay, that last line, I'm not sure, it's a little gibberish, fine. question is clear. So in truth, I talked about this very directly, and I don't want to go over the whole thing, so I'm going to refer you straight. I talked about it in Episodes 153, 201, 203, and 207. And I actually read a letter from the Rebbe that Imamish talks about, literally about this topic. That although the Gemara and the Halacha says that first Parnos, then loudly the Rebbe says, today is the other way around. And explains it in that letter. Again, I don't want to use the time, valuable time, to repeat. So it's in those episodes that I just referred you to. Just briefly, is yes, we do have a great Rebbe, and we have a great Taylor, that gives us direction, and turn to it. Find a Mashpia that can help you interpret it, and apply it to your life. There is no such thing as resignation. I don't know what to do. And definitely do not allow resentment to control your life. What you want to do is find out what the Taylor, what khsid is, what the Rebbe says, in your given situation. I specifically mention a mentor, a because every situation is different and it's important to get good direction. And I, I definitely strongly refer you to those episodes. I'll repeat them again, even though you can always rewind, not in the live program, obviously, in at, afterwards, but but just, again, episodes 153, 203, But since it's a personal question, I see it's a question that comes up from time to time. It's worthwhile refreshing our... Discussion on the topic. Another question that connects to it is actually a follow-up to episode 209, College. Why do we respect university-trained professionals in our community, but frown upon Yeshiva Bochum going to college? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your discussion last week regarding studying in college. He's talking about episode 209. It's a follow-up. I agree that attending college in in the conventional sense, in the conventional sense, could be detrimental to one's Yiddishkeit, Judaism, if not applied properly. It is also important that one choose to study a practical career path such as accountancy or law rather than study philosophy or liberal arts. Liberal arts. What I find frustrating, however, is that no one in the Frum or Lubavitch community has any issue if one of its members is a doctor, lawyer, accountant, psychologist, or qualified teacher. In fact, these people will be respected as upstanding successful members of the community and will be called upon to share their skills or expertise and money, dot, 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 to help improve the collective experience of the community. Yet if someone were to say that they are studying to become qualified in any of these professions I listed above, the response often would be something to the effect of, no, feh, you shouldn't be in college, or how long does it take anyway? It's a bit ridiculous that you are completely accepted and and embraced for being a professional, but the expectation is for it to happen overnight without any training. On the flip side, any Lubavitch who advertises him or herself in any given professional field is basically giving away the dark secret that he or she went against the Rebbe's wishes by going to college. But again, no one shuns these from professionals. Rather, they are treated with the utmost respect. So basically, during your training years, you need to keep your university study a secret for fear of rejection. By the end of the day, it's worth it since people will respect you once you start practicing in your chosen field of expertise. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this puzzling paradox. Many thanks and call to. So first I refer you again to the same episodes I mentioned, where I discussed it, I also discussed that you know, times have not changed in, re- in response to the previous question. Uh, but the angle you've taken here is an interesting one, but we know that there are people, anyone who started the university, people who, for example, may have become Shemitei mitzvahs in the middle of their university studies, very often, in most cases, maybe in all cases, the Rebbe told them to finish their studies. And there were actually people that the Rebbe encouraged to, to get a degree because he recognized that these are people who will not be affected in the negative way and they know how to use it for holiness. For someone who's already there, the Rebbe was not against education, against knowledge. It was a matter of choices, as I discussed in those episodes. If you have the opportunity to come, say, come to a community and be a soul doctor, that helps people, their souls, and there are many doctors, there are many accountants, many lawyers. What do we need another one for? So that's a chachil initially. If a person is already taking it and is ready to spend some time, so of course, use it and then use it in the holy, good, kosher Torah way. Why we respect? We respect everybody, a professional. But you could also be a professional teacher and a professional shliach, a professional askin, public servant, a professional running of a nonprofit. The Rebbe wanted to show the priority should be that, because that's what we need most in our world. What's lacking most is spiritual direction, is Jewish inspiration, is knowledge. We live in a world that is very ignorant, people who are like born into captivity from a spiritual and Jewish sense of the word. And I said, as I elaborated more there, so there's nothing. of course you respect, you respect every human being, even if they're not a doctor, and if the person is a delivery person, you don't respect them. So I understand there's an element of respect that comes as a result of um, a professional, obviously, as an accomplished person. But you can respect a great Talmud Chachim, a scholar, people who are, who, are, uh, who are leaders in their community, as I just elaborated on. And no, I wouldn't look at it this way. I would look at it, find out what is the best thing for you to be doing and fulfilling the mission of your life. And Hajgawaha Pratis is very vital here. Someone was brought up in a secular world and already went to college, university to finish as part of the Hajgawaha Pratis of their life. Someone else brought up in the yeshiva environment as a chassid, as, as, uh, under the Rebbe's influence and the Rebbe's, uh, uh, the Rebbe's direction, and is aware of that, so they have the Rebbe's gift, the gift of knowing why they're here and the purpose that they were blessed with. So that's the brief answer, and the rest, as I said, I refer to those other episodes. Now I'm going to do a bunch of follow-ups because there have been a tremendous amount of follow-up to previous episodes, which is why I also chose less topics, new topics, because I want to really cover these follow-ups. Last week I wasn't able to cover it, so I'm going to try to do as many as I can, If not, and the rest I will do, please God, in the coming weeks. So in episode 231, um, I spoke about a couple who fight after they go out or they have guests. So so you can go back to episode 231. Let me use this opportunity to tell you about the rich resources we have online, completely free, for your use. And that is at MeaningfulLife.com slash My Life. You have all the archives of now 232 episodes. That's a serious amount of material. It's all time stamped in in the YouTube version of the videos. Also, you can find there the forum where you can submit any question you want anonymously or confidentially, and uh, and I'll read them in the order they're received. There's a lot of backup. And uh, in addition to that, you also can see the essays, the essays that were submitted this year and the previous years um, for the essay contest, which is another great resource. I've also mention that we are supported by your generosity, so please help us. By dedicating a class in the love, in the, in the memory of a loved one or in honor of a loved one, and doing so by going to slash sponsorship. Your generosity helps this continue, help us make this grow, and help it make it expand in every possible way. With that, let me go now to this follow up. So, a fellow wrote, someone writes Hello, Rabbi Jacobson about the couple fighting after going out. You invited comments in regards to the letter from the person who said he or she gets into a fight with his or her spouse after going out or going to the synagogue or even after having, being over, guests, guests coming over. The question I would ask this couple is, so again, if, you have, if you're not familiar with what this is referring to, just go back to episode 231, find it. You can click right there and, and you'll see what this is addressing. I'm not going to go over all of that because obviously it can all be cross-referenced as I'm doing right now. So this is what this person writes. The question I would ask this couple is, do you listen, or to, do you listen to or speak Lashon Hara at these times? Meaning when you go out or you have guests or after the guests leave. I used to come home and feel irritable after going to synagogue or a dinner out because I heard Lashon Hara or other inappropriate conversation and I, and I did not do anything about it but listened passively. For example... At the Shabbat dinner table, the host would start saying something negative about someone. The most egregious example was when the rabbi himself would start to badmouth another rabbi. I also didn't like it when the conversation on Shabbat would shift to a discussion about money. Even Even after the Kiddush recited specifically said to honor Shabbos by avoiding such mundane speech. I felt bad when I passively endured all these things. I made a little bit of progress when I would get up and excuse myself and go to the bathroom when such conversation started, hoping that when I returned, the subject would have shifted. Finally, I got to the point where I said outright, I don't like to talk about money on Shabbat, and to his credit, that usually led to a change in the conversation. I wish now I had the chutzpah to have said, I don't want to listen to Loshnara," and if we can't shift the conversation, I'm out of here. I never did that, but, but Baruch Hashem, I was able to leave the congregation and community and I'm now in a much better congregation and community where I rarely encounter such transgressions of speech. And I come home from shul and from social events in a much happier, more contented mood. So this fellow is suggesting that perhaps that may be a contributing factor why the couple fights after they go out and engage with others outside of the home. Possible, and it's a good question and a good point, and that's why I appreciate you writing that. And yes, we are always either part of the problem or part of the solution, which means when you see things being talked about that are inappropriate, that are bad mouthing that are negative, that are just negative energy don 't just ignore it, either change the subject you don 't have to reprimand anybody because that 's also going to become negative, but in some way turn positive turn it to positive don 't participate definitely don 't become a party to a discussion that is either inciting. Or, or, or negative about someone, or machlekes oriented, and so on. So, thank you for that. Another question was regarding also episode two thirty one, was diminishing generations. They were speaking about the question. There was about um, the, the later generations why external things may matter more in, in episode two thirty one two weeks ago. So, this fellow writes chief mashpi of the virtual universe, Rabbi Jacob Trinshiyechi. Sounds like. It's a regular writer. He always has these beautiful uh, adjectives. <clears throat> In the Hayyem Yem for seventh Mark the previous Rebbe brings the order of refinement after Matan Ter of action, speech, and thought. As such, it would seem that our generation, the last of Golas, has a generational job of refining thought, whereas the first generation, post-Matan had the generational task of refining action. How does this jive with what you said? And many others often say that our generation is the lowliest of generations, Thanks for your amazing v I guess, virtual Fabrengans. Yes, it's a good question. Um, the Rebbe addresses it in his classic famous essay that was printed first in, Shuvos, in Kevitz Labavitch, and then in Tshuva Suburim and now in Igris Kedish volume 2 on Chies HaMesim when he talks about the evolution of history that the world and existence is always evolving toward greater perfection. That's not a contradiction, that though we are much more perfect world than the, the earlier generations, because we have the cumulative power that they had plus what we have now. But we are actually refining the last steps, which is why it's called of the Meshiha. Ikvaseh means the heel. So if all of history looks like an organism, a body, Adam and Chava would be the raish, the head. As you work your way down, Teta, the Besamikdash, would be mechin, midas, until you get to Nehi. That's a chayd as the Friedrich Rebbe and the Friedrich Rebbe Rashab and the Maimar Pesach Maimorim of Taflish Samach Tes and Tafshin Tess, respectively, talk about the last birudim. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the accumulative power. So, in some ways, our, our focus is on action. Just do it because we don't have the emotional wherewithal, the emotional sophistication, or the intellectual one that the Der De'ya had, that the time the Bissamizush they had, that the Tanoim and Amoraim had. So our focus is on the action, which is like the final steps. But on the other hand, we have the inner power of all of that, like in Nonas al-Gabanok, a midget that stands on the giant, on the shoulder of giants that has all that. So it's not a contradiction. That we may be, in a sense, lower souls than they, but, but on the other hand, we're refining the last steps. The deepest, darkest places, we may be lower souls, but we have all the power that they had, and plus more, because of the little that we add. So... I don't see the contradiction at all between these two angles. Okay. The next question was about Khsidis Chagas. Okay. So this again in 231. The question there was, does your futsa man a which Mashiach told about Shemtav? Spreading your wellsprings outwards. When you do that will happen when that excuse me, when that will happen, Mashiach will come. So the question was whether that includes Khsidis Chagas. And I answered yes. Now, here's what some people wrote, and then I'll respond. Okay. I kind of disagree that after the Al Rebbe taught and revealed Chassidus Chabad, we should still say that Chassidus Chagas also accomplishes Mashiach's request of the Kashiya Futsu. Actually, not request. He's, he's stating a fact. So he disagrees. We, are, we were taught in Yeshiva that Chassidus Chabad is opposed, quote-unquote, to Chassidus Chagas, accomplishes the idea that the wellsprings reach the outer limits. It is the transformative power of Chabad and the bitl of Chachm that transforms your middis, your emotions. The ultimate chutz is when the change is real and true and transforms one's entire being down to your actions. Okay. So somebody writes in response to that. There's a video that recently from Zayn Cheshvin, Tov Nun, 7th of Cheshvin, this would be 1989. The Rebbe is speaking to a Geruch Hasid, and the Rebbe gave a bracha for a safer, and said that the learning of Hasidus' Ger is part of Afotza Samayana Aschutza. The Rebbe tells him that, that it was, I think it's his bar, this son's bar mitzvah, the Rebbe said to make sure that he learns Ger Hasidus It's part of his Afotza Samayana Aschutza. He should learn Ger Hasidus every day. Like, the Rebbe doesn't say specifics, but that's what he says. So someone says in a turn... Yeah, the son-in-law of the Gerard Rosh Hashiva, Rapinchas Benachem Alter, talked about his son's birthday, and the Rebbe told him this about learning Chassidus. So you see from that that it seems to be Chagas Chassidus is included. So someone else writes, perhaps for a Gerard Chassidus it counts as his chutzah. However, once you have been zeiched to be exposed to Chassidus Chabad, once you merited to, to be exposed to Chabad, then that philosophy and way of life becomes your only chutzah. It's like someone working with a computer from the 80s. Is it technological? I guess technically it is. Would you say a person working with it today is experiencing cutting-edge technology? Probably not. I feel strongly that Rabbi Jacobson agrees. However, he sometimes gets lulled into choosing to not offend other paths, quote-unquote, versus play saying an emphasis on our path that we believe to be the cream of the crop and the only brand of chassidus that will finally break through all barriers. So... Okay, fine. So firstly, anyone listening to this program knows that I'm not the lulling, the lull type. Yes, there's no reason to offend anybody, but that does not mean we compromise our values and our standards. So let's just state that. But fine. But above all, everything with sources. So as brought this, that your thought seems interesting. You could say that, so firstly to say that the Emes or Gera Khsiddis or, or the Lamelech or the Badichidis or other Khsidis is like an old computer, God forbid. I don't know, it's Taylor. Te- it's part of te- It's part of Chassidus. it's part of the Balshemtav's Talmudim, the Magid, the Magid's Talmidim, his students, and they wrote it. Khsidis even cites it. So to say the statement that this type of elitist statement is only Khidz Khabad. You could say Khabad is the all-encompassing picture. But Khxidis Chabad itself. Is it one Maimer? Is it all the Maimarim? So that it also encompasses Chsidis Chagas. Now you say, you could think, it's my own thought. No. There's actually an Iglis Kedish from the Friedrich Kareba, volume one, page 341, 342, and he says it explicitly. He says it explicitly that it's all one, even Chsidis Chagas. Even though each one had their own particular path, Haemes Hu Echod. In truth, it's all one. Even though the ways of Pelin, Poland, which is Chagas Ksidis, is different than Ksidis Chabad in Havana Vasogya, hanesa Its theme, it's, it's, its content is one. And you can read it in detail. It's a very fascinating letter. I don't want to read the whole details. And then he goes on that it's all from Tedis Rabbeinah Baal And he actually quotes even Svasemis. That it actually has actually has from sefer Shabbatim. So the Oyv and Noach and Adovel asesu leerus lechsi the pelm sheikh rashi yasso a goodus a goodness, we yilman du chsiddus shal rabe seim. But klays lech shalhem unaz id gorandish. So actually the Frieder Rebbe is encouraging exactly like the Rebbe did in the doll, by the dollars that that to learn the chsiddus the from their rabeim, and he goes on to explain it in detail how it's all one. Check it out, and you'll see it yourself. Yeah. So I gave you the source, which is Igrus Kedesh, volume one, of the Fidi of page 341, 342. And on the contrary, when you learn Chesidus Chabad, you see also how their is maybe elevated when you see the, it's like someone looking at, I would not use the example of the all-newer computer. I would use the example of someone standing on top of a mountain and sees the whole horizon, as opposed to seeing a piece of it. Like a Shadrach Kalo. So you can learn one piece of Taylor, which is completely Taylor, completely khsidis. And then there's learning the whole picture. Just like when you learn Ayanbe's, you get a much bigger picture than when you learn one Maimon, even though it's all within Khsidis Chabad. So that's my take on this. Okay. The next question, the next follow up. Okay, we're moving along here. Is the issue of stuck in, I'm sorry, not religious therapists. This was last week, two thirty-two, episode two hundred and thirty-two, but not religious therapists. So here was a whole slew of responses. I'm not going to read them all. Suffice it to say, back and forth. Some saying no, it's all in chassidus. Some saying no, you have to religious therapists. It, it, it often causes damage. Someone actually brings a very interesting uh, uh, episode where the rabbis didn't help them, therapists didn't help them. They ended up getting counseling from actually Christian counseling. And they've said that really saved their marriage. So as I said in my talk about this, it's a complicated matter. It's not black and white. Because there are areas that overlaps. You go to a doctor, whoever can help you best, not necessarily the biggest, most God-fearing doctor. When it comes to psychological, emotional issues, obviously you want us to take greater care because you're dealing with the area that Chesidus is supposed to respond to, Tanya is supposed to respond to. But if you can't find someone that, that knows how to do it, then you may have to find someone that is sensitive to it and maybe even be familiar with Chassidus. And the goal would actually be maybe the final frontier is create a new model that encompasses the best of all worlds, the modalities that secular psychologists have developed, but the spirit and the content driven by Chassidus and the Yerushalayim of Chassidus. So it's very interesting back and forth, back and forth. And I, as I said, I'm not going to read it all, But I found it to be very fascinating, so many people involved in it. And at the end of the day, the the, there are no perfect therapists. You have to find something that works for you. And that I totally agree with. It would be great, and not only great, I would say necessary. Make sure it's under the guidance of a competent rabbi who understands the big picture. And somebody who knows chassidus well. So even if they can't directly guide you in certain areas... And this is common. Good mashbiyim, they will have certain professionals that they may address, refer you to, and that complements what they do with you, but it's still guided by a chesidisha person, by a Torah-based person. Then you really have the best possible scenario that you don't, because you don't want to get trapped in secular approaches to things that are either outright forbidden or not in the spirit of uh, Torah and Yiddishkeit. Okay. Then there was the next one. Let's go to the next. Um, the next one was Shaloi Asani Isha. So Rabbi Jacobson, this also was last week's episode. You did, a, you did give a thorough and pretty convincing answer in episode 232 to the question that asked for an explanation of the blessing. Shaloi Asani Isha, do not make me a woman. You explained why the blessing has to be in the negative form i.e., a man thanks God for not making him a woman rather than for making him a man. So wouldn't women woman then say the blessing, sani ish, thank God for not making me a man. When we thank God for our special status as having the mitzvahs inherent within us, as you described, shouldn't we express this gratitude by saying, Sani ish? Why don't women say this blessing? Thank you. Another question came in, how come it's not written in the Siddur? Isheh is Baruch Hashem, Shasani Keretzene? You made me as as you willed me to make. Which some do, but it's not in the Chabad and not in many Sidurim. The answer lies in my explanation. The fact that a woman has less mitzvahs, and the fact that she's not as responsible to learn as much, and Torah, and tefillah, is not because she's less, but because she inherently doing things that she just inherently has that experience, like I mentioned birth, and other fundamental things that she has. A woman does not need as much expression as a man, because a man comes from the world of expression. I don't know if I mentioned it last week, but in, in discussions in previous episodes, I spoke about a woman's energy is kfuda basmelech prima. The honor of the queen, of the princess, the daughter of the king is inward. What that means in chasidrisha terms, la'atzmei. It's an intimate energy that all of us have, which shines inward. Then there's expressive, or the energy that you express to others. Think of it thought would be like you think to yourself, you speak to others. So, masculine energy is more expressive energy. A man conquers, he's a warrior. He sublimates, he takes the coarse elements of the world and refines them. Like it says in the Talmud, he takes the wheat from the field and brings it to the woman, she bakes them. He brings the flax and she turns it into a garment. So he is basically sublimating and taming the elements. That's his strength, expression. And a woman turns it into an intimate force in life. Intimacy, by definition, does not need that much expression. So it's not about making a different blessing. It doesn't need the expression. When a woman says, Ma'idani in the morning, it includes all that. Thank you for giving me back my soul. Everyone says that. People forget that all the brachas, let's not forget, they all come after Ma'idani. And everyone, man and woman, says that. Thank you for returning my soul to me. For a woman, it's a feminine soul. For a man, it's a masculine. And everyone's thanking. You don't have to have additional expression. A man needs more signposts to sublimate his aggressive ego and so much more of his externals that are necessary. And even that makes it diff- that often also difficult. Like I mentioned with Shabbos, filling is necessary through the week. But Shabbos, Shabbos itself has it. So you don't need the expression of it. Shabbos itself is that experience. Okay, due to the time, let me see if I'm going to do any more. Okay, there's a few more, um, actually three more, two more, which I'll push off to next week. So Thank God we did pretty well. One is on shlichus, one is on uh, stuck in marriage. Okay. Yeah. So now let us go to, where are we? The chesidus question. So this question, being that it's Chav this week, tomorrow. What is the connection between the Rebbe Rashab and Keser as indicated in the date of his birthday? Chav the year Kisra. So let me explain with that question and then we'll answer it. Yeah. So in Chanech so kuntus that uh, the, the from the from the Rebbe So in there, there's in the beginning of it, there is the um, page eight. There's a, sh- a summary of the biography of the Rebbe Rashab. and there it says that when they called the Rebbe Rashab that uh, they, they called his name, meaning Shalom David Ber as Bris, so that Semach Tzedek, who was then still around, still before the Estalkus. I don't know if that I apologize for that expression. It's still around is not the right way to say it, but the Temach Tzedek, of course, his talkers with Tofresh Chavov. The Rebbe Rashab was born five years before that, so the Temach Tzedek said, "Nelid Chov Chesven Tofresh Chavalif Shiyesh B'Zeh Shnei Chafin Shul LeKisra Ilah." He says he was born Chov Chesven Kisra Tofresh Chavalif. If you reverse the letters, is Keser in Aramaic Keser is Kisra the crown, that has two Chofs, the Chof of Cheshven, the 20 is Chof, and Kisra's is, kes is Chof. So he says, that's two Chofs, which hints to Keser's law. And the Rebbe explains, in at length, in the Sikh in Chof Cheshven, Toph Shemem It was Shabbos, Pashar it was Chof Cheshven. That's in Sefer Sikh's Toph Shemem volume 1, page 62 and on. Beautiful explanation, in the Tzema Tzaddik's words, what he means. Briefly, Keser, this explains is rotson. It's God's desire, will. It's the first interface between godliness and existence. Because if there's no will, there's no connection. If I don't want to do something, there's no will, there's no connection. Once I want to build a house, then the will leads me to implement that. You still need more than just a will. But will is the first interface between God and everything else that comes out of it. And this is explained at length where... In the classic Hemsheh Chaim which is the magnum opus of the Rebbe Rashab, the Bal Yemel of Chav Cheshven. Right in page two, he begins to... Page one, he starts Keser. The whole theme of Ayin Beis is Keser. Which really is extension of Kabbalah and Chayim. that Keser is the interface. Keser consists of two parts, Atik and Arich. The part that... Like in any interface, like think of a translator, you have the part that represents the higher entity, which in this case is Elukus Atik, and the part that relates to existence, and they both come together in Keser, and that's the two parts of Keser. So the Rebbe Shab's role was interface, which we see in establishing the yeshiva that we mentioned before, Temchit Mimim, and in, in being the Rambam of Chsidis, where he took Chsidis and turned it into a, like a Rambam in an organized way, as he elaborates in this Sikha, and he says Chsidis is primis Terah that comes from Keser. But Chlal is Keser, we say Keser Terah. Because is, Teir is like the blueprint of existence. It's the interface between God and existence. Where God invested his, his will and his wisdom into Teir. In Teir itself, Primisa Keser is, or Keser in general, the Keser of Teir itself is Primisa Teir, and Primisa Teir itself is Primisa Keser. As he elaborates here, and based on the Kuntasunyon Shalteris Akhsidis, which is based on the mimor of Yutaskist of Tafri which the Rebbe that year when he said Kuntasunyon Shahthis Akhsidis, Yutaskist of Tafshav. So all this he explains is the Kessir that brings a Lakus into Velt. That's what Khsidis does. Khsidis takes divine and through the garments of intelligence. Not that how people misunderstand that Khsidis is understanding God. No. It's godliness manifesting through intelligence so we can relate to it on our terms. So that's what Khsidis is in general. And the Rebbe Rashab, the Rabbah of Chassidus took it to epitomize that. So that's why his birthday is in the year Kisra. So you have both elements of Kesar with him. Yeah. And you can look it up more in detail there. So the Rebbe Rashab, his whole purpose in life his whole mission his particular role is hinted to in his birthday itself Chof in the year kisra the Rebbe adds kisra is not keser that would be toflish Chof. it's in the it's in the Aramaic so that's, that's the targum and targum means bringing it into chutzah even a language that's outside of Hebrew Aramaic which only emphasizes more this interface that's the brief of it and that is based as I said on this sikh we have more to follow up on and I will um, give one more follow-up. Last week, we spoke about the Ramchal and the Chassidus' question, What Chassidus' relationship with the Ramchal, Ram Moshe Chaim Litzato, and especially his Sefer, I just wanted to add a few points that I, that I, I neglected to mention, that, that the Maggit, it says, called the Sefer, clear and pure. So you see a positive side, even though there were those that were very much against learning it. The Sefer Klach Pis Chechachma for the Ramchal was printed with askama, endorsement of some of the, of one of the students of the Magid. And it had that, and published by people who were the Magid students. So you see there again about its quality. Finally, there's a famous story with an Ebn Marash. When he was young and went to the tzaddik's room and he saw all the svarim, and he said, "Like, what do you need all these svarim?" So the tzaddik said, "Take a sefer and for And he took out three books, but one of them was Minsilis Shishardim. That was the third one, and and the began to quote it. So it was the two other svarim. I'll tell you which three. They were all with a mem. The first one was Sefer Mislil, which is a sefer of digduk. The second, one, the second sefer was Mes- Mesilis Chachma. That was a, a sefer which has Klolim on Kabbalah. And then he took one more Mesilis Yisharim and the Tzermach actually told him what it says there. He knew it word for word. And he said, it's a sefer of Musar. And he said, Baal Peb, and he, asked me, and he told me Baal Peb from the place that I asked him, seeing that the Tzermach clearly knew it. One more thing I want to mention, someone pointed out to me, that is an expression, the mitzvah's milah and derech mitzvah secha, the Tzermach which he wrote very when he was young, 12a, Yud a language that's very similar to Ramchal and Klach Pischei Pesach in the fourth gate or the fourth door. Okay, let me now go to the, to the essays. And this is a complement to last week's discussion on Ramchal. So three essays. The first essay, How to Use Chassidus to Change Your Negative Mindset for the Good. Mindy Rosenblatt, age 19, Brooklyn, New York student, Bernays Hamish Academy. She writes, Unfortunately, we all know at least one person who is severely depressed in our lives, whether it be your classmate, neighbor, best friend, or maybe it's even you. When one is depressed and going through a hard time, they get stuck in this deep but shallow mindset of self-hate and doubt. This makes one have an extremely hard, hard time seeing the bright side of life and having the will to live it. This teaches us the best way to heal ourselves when we are going through a difficult time. So it's a short essay, but basically talks about self-control, that we can control our emotions. Very consistent to what I spoke about earlier. Obviously, much more tragic circumstances of the Chesidic approach to difficult situations. And... Um, it brings up Moshe Meishel's famous story, how he controlled his heart when Napoleon went over. He was a spy, spying for the on this for the side of the Alexander of Russia. But basically expressing how we have that control over our emotions. So that that's one essay. Second essay is New Perspective, Simi Kaltman, age 16, New, Al- New Albany, Ohio. A student, Lubavitch Girls High School. When you are 14 years old and you leave home, it really helps to know exactly who you are. To me, home is an anchor, a place where I can just be myself in a safe and accepting environment. And then that fateful day comes and I'm gone, off to a new place, new friends, and new life away from home. What does all this mean? How can I possibly make make sense of such a life-changing move? move? And uses um, a few good anecdotes. Talks about her grandfather, who was a Holocaust survivor. And then, using Tanya that explains how really one can get the strength of making such transitions. Tanya beginning... Yeah. Basically, the certain few basic principles on Tanya in the beginning of Tanya. And again, very well done. I, I enjoyed reading it. So, yeah. Using it also, comparing it to Chana. So this and the other essays... Oh, let me read the third one. Uh, the, 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 all these three essays are posted as they, as I read them each week on our online at meaningfulive dot slash my life. Finally, the third essay: Take to heart the child's potential. Ilana Duban, twenty four, age twenty four, Issaquah, Washington, director of infant daycare. She talks about resilience and curiosity are two of the many qualities that come to mind when thinking of children. They're always full. Of, they're always full of vitality and energy. Observe a child from birth, after leaving a warm and comfortable home, they are forced to enter a cold, dark world. Yet they strive to understand their surroundings. The people they meet and the various smells they encounter. As Dr. Maria Montessori taught, the goal of education should be to activate the child's own natural desire to learn. How do we implement these qualities in or out of the classroom? She says, one of the Baal Shem Tov's cardinal teaching was that one should learn something from everything he sees and hears. She goes on to use that to apply that to education of children. Very interesting, creative way to do it. It's short and sweet, but it's a good point, and I recommend that as well. So there we have the essays. Um, as I said, they're posted each week, and if you subscribe to our weekly newsletters, newsletter, you can get them also in your inbox. Okay, my friends, we come now to the conclusion of this, in some ways, heart-wrenching time, the day after such a tragedy in Pittsburgh. I'll conclude with where I began. The living shall take to heart. The families and all those connected then the community should only know Simchas. And above all, we should all use this opportunity to bring more light, more joy, more spirit, more Yiddishkeit, more Teda, more Mitzvahs, both in Pittsburgh and everywhere in the world. And finally, vanquish the last... Set the last elements of darkness that are still in this world and we come to a world where it will be kule Eir, only light and only joy, world of Mashiach and Geula. And I hope that part of achieving that is accomplished through the weekly program called My Life, Chassidus Applied, which attempts to apply Chassidus exactly in the spirit of what the Mashiach told the Bashamtav. And each of the Rebbe focused on the Rebbe Rashab in his way, where Chutzah means not just the farthest places in the world, which of course it also includes, but also the farthest places in our own spirit, even the darkest places, even places of grief, and even the mundane world in which we live. That's the goal, is to take Chassidus and apply it to that part of life. And that should all speed up the and the Gula We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Please participate with your questions, with your comments, with feedback, anything you want to address, anything that I address that you have a different take on or would like to add something or uh, comment in some other way, please do so. And of course, questions, new questions. And with that, everyone should have a blessed week. It should be a Simcha week. We should only know Simchas and joy. Thank you.